This episode is brought to you by Cartier. From the wild, free, and glamorous spirit of the 1980s came a Cartier watch design that was equal parts jewelry and watchmaking. Pontaire de Cartier mirrors the movements of the Maison's emblematic animal, a creative signature that has been reinvented time and time again since her first sighting in the Cartier registers. Shop Pontaire de Cartier and more from the culture of design at Cartier.com. Hi everyone, I'm Hilary Kerr, the co-founder and chief content officer of Who What Where, and this is Second Life, a podcast spotlighting women who have truly inspiring careers. We're talking about their work journeys, what they've learned from the process of setting aside their doubts or fears, and what happens when they embark on their second life. Our guest today is the founder of Tower 28 Beauty, a modern beauty brand straight out of Southern California, named after the life tower between Santa Monica and Venice Beach. Amy Liu is the co-founder and CEO of this brand, known for products like its SOS spray and Shine On lip jellies. Tower 28 is the first and only beauty brand that 100% follows the National Eczema Association's ingredient guidelines, making their products safe for even the most sensitive skin types. But it's not just about clean ingredients, it's also about great product too. In 2020, just one year after the brand's launch, all of Tower 28's products were recognized for awards. In this episode, we're going to talk about why Tower 28 stands out and what clean beauty means exactly. We're also going to talk about Amy's first life. So prior to founding her beauty company, Amy worked for years driving marketing for brands like Josie Moran, Kate Somerville, and Smashbox. She got her business degree at USC and was L'Oreal's first ever recruit from the school. Today, Amy's talking about how she learned she wanted to pursue beauty in the first place and how she got her foot in the door. Plus, she tells the story of a very awkward, but ultimately successful, pitch to Sephora, which is fabulous. Now, on Second Life, it's Amy Liu. We like to start at the beginning on this podcast, so... What did you study in school? And much more importantly, what did you want to be when you grew up, Amy? You know, my dad was an entrepreneur growing up. And so I think seeing him, I always wanted to be an entrepreneur, but I didn't know how that would manifest and exactly how I would put that into play. I studied economics in undergrad, and then I went to business school as well, and I studied marketing and entrepreneurship then. But basically, I studied kind of big subjects that I thought wouldn't steer me wrong. I didn't do anything very niche (laughs) because I honestly just didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. I once heard Elizabeth Gilbert talk about how there's two types of people in the world and that they're either a jackhammer or a hummingbird. And it was the idea that like you either come into the world and you like really know what you want to do and you have such a passion for it and you're like a jackhammer. Or I think you're more like me and you're more like a hummingbird where I was sort of floating. I just really didn't know 
what I wanted to do with my life. And I think part of that was really hard for me, actually. I really looked up to and I really envied those people who really knew what they wanted to do because it was such a clear path. And I just didn't have that honing in on exactly what I wanted to do. But I knew I wanted to do something entrepreneurial. Okay, so... Your first big job after school was working as an analyst. What exactly does that mean? What were you doing? What was that first job like? Tell me everything. Yeah, so I, again, didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. My parents sent me to go meet a distant cousin of mine who had gone to Harvard Business School, which in their mind was everything. Everything. (laughs) And she told me, if you don't know what you want to do, then you should go be a consultant. You should go work for one of the big five companies, and they will put you in different other companies, and you'll figure out what you want to do. And so that's what I did. I applied for a job out of college. I went to Accenture, where I was, I think the job was called a process analyst, and (laughs) I Worked for everything from Amgen to the state of New Mexico to really random companies. And basically, I did a lot of coding. I did a lot of literally systems work, which was so different than what I thought I was going to be doing. And I really enjoyed being part of an organization that was filled with really smart, intelligent young people. But the truth is, I just didn't love the actual work that I was doing. I didn't enjoy systems coding. And even though it was something, Turns out I was pretty good at, I didn't like the work. And I think that where you ultimately find success is where you can find that intersection of being good at something and liking it. It's true. It's true. It's such a funny thing because when I was younger, I used to think, well, like if I'm good at it, I like it. But I have learned that that's not actually the case. And you're right. You need to have both pieces of it there. Yeah. A lot of folks who I speak to get their start in the consulting world. And to your point, it gives you some insight into lots of different types of companies and lots of different career paths that you might not necessarily have access to. Sounds like you got to see a lot, but you already knew this was not the exact job you wanted. So how long had you been working before you decided to go to business school? Two years. I was literally the youngest person in business school. Essentially, I, again, didn't know what I wanted to do. And so I thought, okay, well, why don't I just go to business school and it'll buy me some time to figure it out. And I I was. I was always pretty worried about what my resume looked like. Mm-hmm. And I was worried about just being able to have the credibility so I could try something if I wanted to do it. So I decided to go to business school. I went to USC. And Actually, a fact that I will share with you that I have not said very many times out loud is that I didn't get into a lot of the business schools that I applied to. And I actually got a full merit-based scholarship to USC, which I'm super both proud of and feel so fortunate to have had. So I got one shot that I got really lucky to have. And I did it really young too. In retrospect, I almost wish I had done it a little bit later, but it was the right time for me because frankly, I just didn't know what else I wanted to do. While I was at business school, I also kind of had what I called my quarter life crisis. Yes. And so I started reading all of these books called literally, What Should I Do With My Life? <laughs> and What Color Is My Parachute, if you know that one too. Oh, yeah. And there were these workbooks around like trying to figure out what you should do. And while I was there, I was like, okay, well, I really love things related to basically my own demographic. So being a woman, I loved magazines, and I decided I would try to do something in either beauty or fashion. And fashion seemed harder because I didn't know how to get into it, and beauty seemed much more linear and a lot more numbers-based. And so that's what I decided I wanted to do. When I was at business school, I went to my career counselor, and I said, okay, what I want to do is work in beauty. And she said, okay, well, 
these are the companies that come and actually recruit from the school. And I was like, well, okay, then maybe I should just go do that. Maybe I should go work for Mattel or something like that. And she's like, no, why wouldn't you at least try, just try to go work for like a L'Oreal or an Estee Lauder or something? And so while I was at USC, I got lucky in this career counselor. There was a dinner that was being sponsored for the students, and she sat me next to this woman who had been like the SVP at Chanel and at Elizabeth Arden and all these types of things, and she actually was my first internship. So I sat next to her at dinner, and I said to her, hey, can I intern for you for free? And I started working for her. So that was actually my first foray into beauty, which was my first year of business school. That's amazing on so many levels. Okay, so overall, aside from wishing that maybe in the grand scheme of things you'd done it a little bit later, was business school a good decision for you? You know, business school was a good decision for me because it was the opportunity to change careers, which is what I was really looking for at that point. I didn't know how else to go about it, and I think it gave me a great network and great foundation. Nowadays, I don't know if I would give someone that same advice, mostly because business school is really expensive. Yeah. And I think that because of things like your podcast, there is so much information out there in the world that you can access on your own. I don't know if I think it's as necessary as it used to be, especially if you consider the financial burden of it. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. So how did you actually get the L'Oreal job after all of that? So L'Oreal did not come to recruit at my school, and I tried every which way to get in touch with them. You know, I applied online. I have tried calling them, the recruiters, and actually the recruiter told me that they didn't recruit at USC. And I was like, oh, is it because we're on the West Coast and you're afraid that if I came to intern that I wouldn't stay for a full-time job offer? I will never forget it. She literally said to me, well, actually, we do recruit from Stanford. (gasps) And... (laughs) I was so offended. And so that wasn't an opening for me. But I, so like I said, I had interned for this woman, Michelle, who had been, you know, a huge person on the East Coast in the beauty industry. And so I told her, I was like, I'm looking for an internship for the summer. I'd love some help. And she gave me the names of these really impressive people that I honestly didn't know who they were, but it was like Carol Hamilton, which is a huge beauty icon, or like the names would go on. And I started calling them. And the assistants were like, I don't know what you're talking about. You're talking to the wrong person. And so then I started FedExing my resume to all of them. Love it. And I would call and then I was like, hi. And I would talk to the assistant. And I would say, hey, did you get my resume? They would surprisingly say, well, yeah, I have it right here. And I'm like, okay, great. Well, I'm going to be in New York um, this week. And I'd love to make time with Carol Hamilton. And surprisingly, they would just make the appointment for me, which was shocking. And then I showed up. And of course, Carol Hamilton didn't want to talk to me when I got there, but the assistant would feel so bad because she'd be like, well, you actually do have something on the books. So let me find someone who will go talk to you. So then I would interview and I was interviewing up and down the building because L'Oreal and Estee Lauder, I did this with both companies. You know, it's like the fifth floor is Biotherm and the fourth floor is Lancome and the third, you know, it's something like that. And so I was going up and down and I was interviewing with someone and all of a sudden they took a phone call and they said, wait, hold on. Are you interviewing at other places in this building? And I was like, oh, I'm interviewing at all of the places in the building. (laughs) And they said, that's L'Oreal recruiting HR. And they told us, you can go home now. We will find you a job. It's enough. (laughs) Like You've done enough here. And so I'm actually really proud to say I was the first intern they ever took from USC's business school. And that was how I got my first start. 
That is an extreme amount of hustle and confidence and also <laughs> stick intuitiveness. Where did that come from? I think I just wanted it, to be honest with you. And I think I felt like I didn't have anything to lose. I didn't have like a reputation to speak of. There wasn't a lot of downside to it. And I think there's a lot to be said for that. There's times in my life I've been a little bit more gutsy and there's times that I've let fear kind of get in my way. And I'm grateful that that one kind of entrance into the beauty industry I was able to do it at a young age because it's lasted me a long time. I mean, that was the one time I tried really hard to get a job. And I've been lucky enough that since then, I really haven't. My second year in business school, since I was the only person in the business school who had gone and done a beauty internship like that, the dean of the school said to me, you know, I'm going to, going to play golf with this guy, Dean Factor, who <laughs> was the head of Smashbox, right? And he's like, I don't know what Smashbox is. Can you tell me a few things about it so that I don't look dumb when I go play golf with him? And I said, sure. Well, I mean, I think I literally wrote him one email and I said, like, this is where they're sold. I think this is what their best-selling product is. This is their positioning. And basically he came back to me and he gave me a business card and he said, hey, I think you should call them. I think they've got a position for you. And so I ended up calling them. I interviewed for a job with them. And that's how I got my first full-time job. I started working full-time at Smashbox as their director of international marketing my second year in business school. So I actually became a PM student. I was going to work in Culver City at Smashbox Studios from like eight to five and then going to USC afterwards. And I became a full nighttime student. That is amazing. I mean, horrifying, but amazing. <laughs> but it was so fun. And this is, you know, early days at Smashbox pre Estee Lauder when it was chaos, but it was fun. And I made some of my best friends there too. So for a first, not even post grad school, because you're still in it, but that first big job, Director of International Marketing. Like that sounds so fancy and such a big deal. What does that actually mean? What were you actually doing? What was this role about? <laughs> I know, right? I mean, I asked myself that sometimes too. So basically, if you look at my career trajectory, so I went from L'Oreal to Smashbox to Kate Somerville to Josie. And if you look at those jobs, every company got progressively smaller and my role kind of got bigger each yep. time. And I did really entrepreneurial things. So in some ways, like when I really look back and I connect the dots, it does all kind of make a lot of sense. Specifically at Smashbox, I was hired to basically come in and bring the brand into international markets. So I had a VP above me and the VP above me was basically going around and doing all the deals and all the contracts. So he was the one going to, I don't know, Selfridges and Liberty and saying like, hey, this is what the assortment's going to be. This is what the price is going to be. This is what the terms will be. And then I I would come in and basically do the rest of it. So I would do pricing. I would do, actually, I would work on assortments a lot. I would figure out what it was supposed to look like. I would figure out what the launch plan is, how to involve PR, and if we should do anything bespoke or custom to that market. So like, are there specific shades that we need to do? Do we need to say things a little bit different? So I got to launch us internationally for the first time, which was a crazy but really fun time. I mean, the day after... I graduated from business school. They flew me to Singapore and I showed up in Singapore in the Philippines and they had this giant sign up in the store that I went to visit and it said, welcome celebrity makeup artist from Smashbox Cosmetics with my name. And I was like, I'm not a makeup artist. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. 
So yes, it was definitely one of those roles where you just kind of did anything that you had to do. I mean, I was like the account rep. I was the press person. I was all the things. And I traveled a lot and I got to see a lot of the world, which was super fun. Did you feel in over your head ever? Did you feel confident in what you were doing and learning because you felt like there was enough infrastructure? Uh, Yes, to all of the above. (laughs) I mean, I didn't know what I was doing, but I think that the thing that, I mean, even consulting, I think, taught me that, like, even if I didn't know how to do something, I knew I was smart enough to figure it out. I mean, in consulting, I did like C plus and Cobalt programming. I didn't know how to do it. We would literally go at night to buy those books like C++ for dummies or C++ for like Visual Basic for dummies. And I, yes. we would buy those books. But yeah, I think I did feel certainly in over my head at some points, but I think it's not dissimilar from being a founder today where you start something, you don't really know what it is exactly that you're signing up for and you just figure it out as you go and you have so many different things you have to do that you didn't even know you didn't know. <laughs> I think that's the key. There's so much that you don't know that you don't know that don't be intimidated by it because there's a lot of education on the job. You just figure it out. And that's the other piece of it. I think that folks sometimes get nervous about. It's like they think, well, I don't have the exact training for that, so I can't do it. It's like, no, you can just figure it out. You will figure it out. There's always training wheels there to make sure that you're not going to drive the whole department off a cliff. It's going to be fine. I mean, even now, being the founder of Tower 28, after having worked in the beauty industry for such a long time, I have to tell you, I thought I knew so much more than I do. Yeah. (laughs) But working next to somebody isn't the same thing as understanding how to do their job exactly, right? So I've worked close to operations. I've worked close to product development, but there was so much I didn't know. And I'm just, it's humbling. But I also love that because to me, that's fundamentally optimistic. Like there's so much to know out there. Like you will always be a student. You will always feel like that. And if you can normalize it, then it's not so scary. Well, and I think it's boring if you know everything, (laughs) right? Like, don't you feel like you've been in that? Like, I feel like there's parts of my life where I totally know what I'm doing. I feel like I could do my job in my sleep. And then that is right at the moment where I start feeling a little bit like, what's next? And that's usually when a giant curveball comes as well. <laughs> totally. <laughs> the universe is like, totally. oh, you think you know? You have no Oh, idea. you think you're comfortable? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Watch this. So you spent some time there. And then after three years, you left Smashbox and moved to Kate Somerville. What prompted the move? What was the job like at Kate Somerville as head of marketing? Like, And why did you think like this is the right time to move on? Yeah. So I got recruited to go to Kate Somerville. My first internship I had back when I was at USC, Michelle, this woman, she ended up being on the private equity side of the Kate Somerville transaction. And so they had just had money come in for the first time. They were only in the clinic. They had never been in retail before. And basically the private equity group hired an entire executive team to launch retail for the first time. I actually was hired in as a director at the time. And my boss, who had been the VP, was, for whatever reason, let go probably within the first month I was there. And so essentially it was, you know, 2008, we were in a financial crisis. And I said to them, I was like, listen, I'll do it. Let me be the head of marketing. 
and you don't have to pay me anymore. Just let me do the job. And they were like, great, we don't have to pay you anymore. (laughs) So that was how I got my first head of marketing role. And it was really exciting to be part of something that was, again, entrepreneurial. Like we were going into retail for the first time. We were launching Sephora, QVC, Neiman Marcus, Bendel's, all those things. So I love the fact that A, you signed up for the bigger job and B, just like the fearlessness of like, let's do it. Let's go. Let's figure it out. What were some of the best skills that you were learning during this time period? And what were you learning about what you didn't want to do? I think one thing I learned is how hard it is to bring on an entire team so quickly. So they hired a lot really fast. And I think that was because we were really interested in growth very quickly and they wanted to support the team. So it was with the right intentions, but I think that's a hard thing to do. So I think about that a lot now as I start growing my own team, because I think, you know, one of my girlfriends says this to me often, but the idea that like tight is right, like try to just make sure that the team is really cohesive, because I think it's hard to bring a bunch of people in at the same time like that. I think the other thing I really learned is how important exclusivity is. And if you look at the way my business is structured right now, like we are exclusive to Sephora as our largest retailer. And I think that was something that was really hard when I was at Kate because we went to, again, Sephora, Nordstrom, all these places at the same time. And it's really hard for anyone to really be your advocate when you are so widely distributed. Because it's not in their best interest. Well, because they feel like if they're marketing for you and advocating and promoting you, are they the ones really getting the sales or is it somebody else who's getting the sales and the benefit of it? Well, I also have seen this on the retail side with fashion where ahead of the Great Recession, like every multi-brand retailer wanted an exclusive bag, an exclusive colorway. They wanted something slightly different. And then the brand itself started to get diluted because they were making things for those retailers' customers, courting the customer, but maybe that customer wasn't quite them and it ended up becoming confusing. So I could see where if you're exclusive, then you and the retailer share similar incentives and that suddenly becomes a very different partnership. Totally. I think it's no different from whether you take a bunch of investors or you have a bunch of retailers. It's just voices in the room, right? So knowing how to kind of stay the course. Kate, I thought, did a great job of sticking with its brand ethos and everything, too. I think it was just hard to get a lot of support from any one retailer. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. So after four years, you moved to Josie Moran. Mm -hmm. What made you decide to make that leap? And Again, like what were you looking to do in terms of expanding your own personal skill set? So Josie was just early. Like it was smaller even than Kate was at the time. And it didn't have the infrastructure of even having institutional money. So it was just Josie, her husband. I was the first VP. I was the first executive there. It was, I think at the time, definitely single digit millions of revenue. It was a much smaller business, but she had distribution. And I think I just felt like I could add a lot of value. And I think that's what really excited me about it. She was really open to feedback. She was really open to change. And I just thought it was a huge opportunity for me in my career. So you were employee number six, right? Mm Mm-hmm. 
I mean, that is also like really great training for being an entrepreneur, being so early at a company, seeing how things get set up, seeing how culture really develops. You'd seen sort of a lack of culture at first because everyone being hired at the same time at Kate, like yeah. you were a part of building a culture. You had been a part of larger legacy brands that had their own culture. At that point, were you starting to think about doing your own thing at some point in time? Or were you thinking like, okay, this is what I do. I just keep moving up the ranks within other people's companies. Yeah, I think the backdrop to all of this, because like I said, I concentrated in entrepreneurship even when I was in business school. I, at a very young age, thought I wanted to be an entrepreneur. So the whole time I told myself, you know, I think I'm just going to keep having a seat at the table. I'm going to get closer to what it's like to be a founder. And then at some point I'll feel ready. That was kind of the story that I told (laughs) myself, right? Actually, to even elaborate on that, part of the reason why it took me so long, I think, to do this, because I didn't start even going on this entrepreneurial journey until I had already worked in the beauty industry for, I think, 14 years. So for quite a long time, right? So one of the things I think that stopped me from it is just my dad, actually, who is an entrepreneur, he was very successful. And then at some point he was a little less successful. And in general, I would say that one of the things he really hit on with me is that I shouldn't do this. He was like, it's going to be hard. I just don't think it's worth it. It's way easier to go work for someone. Don't do it. <laughs> and I understand what he he means to some degree now, but I obviously also find it really fulfilling to be doing this. So to answer your question, I did always kind of have that in the back of my mind and I really wanted to get closer to it and I thought it would help me feel more ready to take it on myself. And risk is a little bit different for everyone. I actually run a program called Clean Beauty Summer School where I work with a lot of beauty founders and specifically women of color. And it's always so interesting to me because there's not one right way of doing it, right? Like just because I waited a really long time before doing this, like I meet people all the time who started this, like the traditional, like, oh, I started this in my garage and I took out $20,000 of debt and I owned the whole company myself. Like that's not what my journey was. And I was a lot more risk averse than that. But I don't think, you know, there's no right or wrong to it. That makes a lot of sense. But eventually you started dipping your toes in the water in the sense that you started working for yourself. You decided to consult. So what was that like? So I quit my job at Josie and that was actually a huge defining moment for me. I had one kid when I was at Kate. I actually had my second kid right before I started. So I was coming back from maternity leave when I started working at Josie. And so I had two young children when I was the head of marketing at Josie and it was a very hard time. Like the business was fast and furious and it was really fun. It was growing rapidly. And so the business part was really fun, but my kids were also really at a very demanding age as well. And I really just started to feel stretched in a way that didn't feel good to me. I felt like I was trying to do all these different things, but I wasn't really doing anything well. And frankly, I wasn't very happy. And, you know, I came home and I told my husband one day, and I think I hadn't even quite told him just to what extent I was unhappy. And he was like, why don't you just quit then? And I just had no idea that that was even an option. He has always been a really frugal person, and he has always encouraged us to live below our means. And so 
I really give him credit for that because the only reason I was able to do that was because we had, you know, saved a lot of money at that point. And he encouraged me to quit. And so I did. I quit and I decided to consult, you know, I took care of my kids and I did that for a few years as well. And I think it was incredibly scary for me to do that. And it almost feels silly in retrospect because now it feels like it all worked out and it was such a great thing to have been able to do that. But at the time, I was so afraid that this career that I had, I wouldn't be able to get back to it. I had a lot of my identity wrapped up in my career. And so to leave it felt really scary. That was a really defining moment for me. And I had a third child during that time too. NBD. I love that you were like, oh, and by the way. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm actually really, I think about that because I don't think I would have had that third child if I had kept working. And obviously I'm, I'm so grateful I did have her. When it comes to being an entrepreneur, it's a long decision process usually, like especially if you do it once you are established in your career. And then there's the time from like when I decided to when I actually started doing it. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me about that time period in the days and months leading up to launching your own company and starting Tower 28 officially? It's funny because I, as much as I thought about it for such a long time, and it was a long time coming, like I think anyone who has known me for a long time, one of my best friends from elementary school was like, this is what you've always wanted. And I'm like, I know it's what I've always wanted, but yet it is oddly not premeditated. So (laughs) I thought about it for such a long time, but the truth is what really happened is when my third child got into preschool, I started really thinking about what it was that I wanted to do next, right? Like I kind of always had the itch and I wanted to go back to work full time. I'd consulted during that time for companies like LimeCraft, and Jouet, wonderful companies, but I wanted the attachment to a brand that I was working on day in and day out. And so I actually caught up with a friend of mine from business school and I told him, I was like, listen, this is what I want to do. I want a lot of upside. I want a senior position, et cetera, et cetera. And he said, okay, got it. But I thought you wanted to do your own thing. And I was like, I do want to do my own thing, but I don't have money and I don't have a partner and I don't know how I can do it otherwise. And he's like, well, if you have money, you don't need a partner because you can go hire people. And I was like, okay, fine. But I still don't have money. You know, at 39, we had just bought our first house. And so it felt like just a really distant idea that we would be able to do something like that. And I think I saw people, you know, like Emily Weiss raising money or like Away and those types of people, but it just felt so distant to me. It felt different than it does today where so many people around you or people that you know are raising money and doing these things. It felt very foreign to me at the time. But anyways, unbeknownst to me, this friend of mine from business school, and we were co-presidents of the EVMA, the Entrepreneurship Venture Management Association. When he graduated from school, he started a SaaS company. Well, he had sold his company, and I didn't know that. So when we met, he said, well, what if I was your first money in? Then what would you do? And I was like, wait, what? That's like a thing? And he's like, well, how much money do you think you would need? And I was like, well, I just did a business plan for somebody else. And according to their business plan, I would need $250,000. And he said, okay, well, if you think you need two hundred and fifty, dollars then you need five hundred. dollars <laughs> And I was like, okay, well, great, but I still don't have any of this money. And he's like, I'll give you half. And I literally was like, what? You have that much money? I had no idea, right? 
And so he essentially offered this to me, but he also said, here are the stipulations. I'm going to give you terms. I want you to walk around and ask people if these are good terms. And second, if you can't raise the other half of the money within 60 days, then that means you don't have a good idea or you don't have people who believe in you. P.S. I did not have an idea at the time. That's what I was going to say. Like, what was the idea? There was no idea yet? (laughs) Oh, my God. No, I didn't have – I mean, I had an idea, like, in the back of my head kind of percolating. But, like, at the time, I was planning on going out and looking for another job. In fact, I had started a few other companies with other people, and they had flamed out. So I didn't really have an idea. And I literally got in the car after that, and I called my best friend. I was like, this crazy thing just happened to me. And she was like, yeah, we would invest something too. I don't know how much you're looking for, but we would put in money. And I was like, what? People have money to invest? I had no idea. And then I did what he told me to, which is I took these terms that he gave me, and I started asking anybody I knew who either had raised money knew someone who raised money or invested in some way. And whether or not they invested themselves, they would point me to someone else. And they would say like, hey, you should talk to this person. And pretty soon I kind of followed the cookie trail and people came out of the word work. Honestly, it was my former coworkers came to me. I think sometimes when I tell this story, people think it means that I have really wealthy friends, but it really wasn't like that. It was like pretty small checks actually. And I think it's because I had told so many people for so long that this is something I wanted to do that I'd almost primed the conversation for it. And so because there was already first money in, People came out of nowhere and they were like, listen, I want to invest. But it was literally like the girl who used to be my coordinator came to me, the manager at our 3PL today invested. So it's not necessarily like fancy private equity people or something like that. And I think the thing that was exciting for me is that I ended up raising money from people I really knew who really believed in me. So like I said, like my best friend, people I vacation with, which is both super scary, but also really motivating, right? So it was people who I knew wanted me to do well, but also like I wanted to do well by them too. That is an excellent motivator. Yeah. So while that is all wonderful, what about (laughs) the vision? What about the brand? How did you figure that out? Because I mean, I just think about like beauty in particular, like formulations take so long and product development, research development. I mean, there's just so much that goes into it. How did you figure out your positioning and what your offering was and what your value was? Yeah. So I think the first thing I did, obviously, when I had this opportunity was sit back and be like, okay, well, what's the idea, right? And I think the thing that I had been thinking about for a long time that I didn't feel like existed in the world is basically based on my own experience of having really sensitive skin. So I've had eczema my entire adult life. So ever since I graduated from college, I've had pretty chronic and severe eczema. It happens on my face. I get it in the crooks of my arms. There were periods of times I wouldn't even wear pants because I would get eczema behind my knees and it would kind of scar almost and look like a bruise. And one of the things I was looking for, especially when I was at Josie and I started learning more about clean beauty, was I wanted products that were not only safe for my sensitive skin, but also clean. And the definition back then was really like, how natural can you make it? And now I think we understand clean to be a little bit more around non-toxic. So when I was at Josie, I tried to make the switch completely to clean beauty, but I think at the time, a lot of clean beauty in an effort to be as natural as possible, they used a lot of essential oils. Mm -hmm. And when I did that, I actually found that a lot of the products were even more sensitizing for me, for my particular skin type. And so I was looking for that intersection. And essentially when this all happened, I had been consulting at Lime Crime. I was wearing like those liquid lip products and everything. And I was 
noticing how my kids really wanted to kiss me to get the transfer off of my lips. And I started thinking more about my daughters and how they're going to grow up and what will they use and how their skin is starting to be like mine. Like they also have really sensitive skin too. And eczema presents itself even more often in children than it does in adults. And so I started thinking more about like, well, what happens when they get older and what will I give them? And so my initial concept was actually a lot more around a younger audience. And that's also part of the reason why our products are more affordably priced. So all of our products today are between $12 and $34. And our lip gloss is 15 which the average lip gloss at Sephora is closer to 20 plus. And so that was really the intersection I was looking for, was products that were safe for sensitive skin and also clean and high performance and affordably priced. That was the concept and it still is today. We're the only makeup brand today that is 100% adherent to the National Eczema Association, in fact. A fact that I love, and I remember when I first started researching your company because I knew about your company and was a consumer before I realized who you were or that you had such a great story. And I remember seeing that. And as someone who has not dealt with it in such a severe way, but who has very sensitive skin, I was like, oh, this is amazing. This is really unusual. This is really interesting. Yeah. I really wanted people like you to just feel safe. So whether or not you have eczema or you have some other skin condition, or you just want to make sure that the products that you're using aren't going to make your skin worse or more irritated, that was really my goal. So even when it comes to clean, like to me, clean is almost like an insurance policy. I don't profess to be a chemist or know everything about every ingredient under the sun. We actually make sure that when we're making our products, we adhere to the Clean at Sephora list and also the Clean at Credo list and now Clean at Goop as well. So we really look to them as experts to tell us what not to put in. But I'm sort of using that as a filtering system to say, like, if people think this might be bad for you, then let's just not include it. But how can I do that and make the products non-irritating and just really high performance? So Based on my experience working at Smashbox, one of the things I learned is just working with celebrity makeup artists and making sure that they think that the products are really amazing and high performance. And that's still something that we do today. So can we talk about the SOS spray? Yeah. Are you a user of it, Hillary? Yes, I am. My dermatologist said like the ingredients in this are similar to what we as dermatologists use every time we have sort of a more intense laser because mm. of its wound healing properties. And I was like, yes. oh, that's so interesting. So I owned it and then my dermatologist was talking about it. And yes, big fan. Oh, I love that. Tell me about the SOS spray, how you came on this idea. It's one of those things that like the more I've learned about it, the more I realize how genius it is. And it's crazy that no one else is doing anything like it. And I was so excited. It's like, oh, that's innovative and thoughtful and great. So I'm curious about how a hero product like that comes along in your life. Yeah, it's so interesting. So I didn't invent hypochlorous acid. Hypochlorous acid is an ingredient that has been around for a long time. It's been used, like you said, in hospital settings mostly by doctors for wound healing. The thing they've had a hard time doing is basically stabilizing it. So what happened was I was starting the company. I was doing all the product development. It takes, you know, a year to make products. And as I was doing that, I was working with a friend of mine. She has a husband who is a surfer, and he was using a product that has hypochlorous acid in it for 
his reef cuts. And she was looking at the bottle and she was saying, oh, like this says it's antibacterial and it's anti-inflammatory. Maybe you should try this for your eczema. And I was willing to kind of try anything for my eczema. So I tried, you know, every steroid under the sun, topical, oral, every diet. I had gone to Eastern, Western, acupuncture, anything, you name it. I've tried everything for my eczema. And so I was willing to try this too. And I noticed that it helped my body, but it didn't help my face. And so that was enough for me to think, oh, maybe there's something really interesting. And I started really digging into the ingredient. And basically I found a chemist and I started talking to him about it. He had been working with the ingredient for about eight years. And he was like, listen, I found a way to stabilize it. Let's play with the pH level. Let's play with the concentration level. Let's create a formula for you and see if we can get it to work for you because it's being optimized for your facial skin. And so we started doing that. We got to a place where it started to work on my skin. And I thought, well, maybe there's something here. So the girls on my team, I had two interns at the time who I'm very proud to say are still with me today. And we basically got like a hundred of these like no-name bottles, just white bottles that we put like literally Avery labels that we printed off of the printer. And we sent them to anyone that we knew that was willing to try it. Like all of us just sent like little emails out to our friends. And what we found is that people who had any type of angry skin, so whether it was acne, sunburn, tattoos, rosacea, eczema for me, we're all having these amazing outcomes. And some people who had perfect skin were like, I don't think it does anything. And we were like, great, that's fine too, right? But it was enough to say like, okay, maybe there's a there there. And so we launched it, which is kind of a tricky thing because we're in all Sephora's US and Canada. And if you go to see us there, we are in the color section, right? So we're with all the makeup and we have this one skincare product. And so everyone in the beginning thought it was a setting spray. And today it's crazy because it's actually our number one selling SKU. It's a huge part of our business and certainly one of the most important ones. So it does have the National Eczema Association seal of acceptance, but it's also this interesting product that sort of just sold itself. Like Haley Bieber mentioned it a few months ago now organically, and it just blew up from that. But then we also have had like these crazy TikTok viral moments from just organic users showing before and afters of it. It's amazing. So I realized I got a little ahead of myself because I love that product so much. But can <laughs> you tell me a little bit about launch and how you decided to go with Sephora as your exclusive partner and what some of those early days were like? So I always knew that Sephora was my dream retailer. You know, it's the company and the retailer that I've worked with the most in my career. And so I knew that they would probably take a call from me, but I didn't know if they would take the product, right? Because that's pretty hard to do. And it's a business at the end of the day. It doesn't really matter if they're friendly with me. And so I kept waiting to be ready. And I remember thinking like, okay, I'm just going to wait until I have like these types of metrics to show them or this product market fit. And a friend of mine who worked at Sephora was like, I think they're going to be doing more with clean makeup and I think you should pitch. So the woman who, when I was at Josie, she was more junior on the team at Sephora. 
she had become the head of clean makeup. And I could see that on our little Instagram mood board when we launched, I mean, that's really what it was. I was not an influencer. So we really didn't have a platform of influence when we launched. It was just an Instagram mood board. But I could see that like every post we put up, she was one of the 50 people who were liking them. So I knew she was paying attention. Mm -hmm. So we launched in April. In July, we approached Credo and Credo said yes. And that gave me a little bit more confidence. And after they said yes, and my friend told me I should approach Sephora, I did. And I will never forget it. I was planning to go pitch. And one of my mentors said, well, what are you going to do when you pitch? And I said, I'm going to go in there with a deck. I thought about it the same way you do like an investment deck. You know, I was like, here's the opportunity. You know, I went to business school. I'm a pretty linear thinker. And she said, no, no, no. Outside of bringing, because again, Tower 28 is inspired by like the beach and the real lifeguard tower between Venice and Santa Monica. And she said to me, she's like, outside of bringing a surfboard and the sand and the ocean to them, she's like, you need to bring everything else that you can to make them understand what your brand is. And I was like, wait, what? (laughs) What am I supposed to do? (laughs) So we actually ended up going into the Sephora offices and we had this boombox with like summery fun music. And then we brought a cooler and the cooler had popsicles in it and lip gloss because the idea was that our lip glosses give you that, I just ate a popsicle look, like just like a little bit of a tint as opposed to like a full color moment. And we went to like the neighborhood grocery store. We undid those popsicles and we had put through the printer at our co-working space, the little (laughs) popsicle wrappers. I mean, it was so homegrown. And then we walked through the Sephora headquarters and we handed popsicles and lip glosses to people, which it's funny because Allure wrote this article about the same story and it sounded cool and disruptive and everything. But the honest truth of it, it was really kind of awkward, right? Because offices are very quiet. (laughs) And so we walked around and the lucky thing was, and again, like I really do believe you earn your reputation in your life. And I always tell people in terms of advice, just be kind to people because it's the right thing to do, first of all, but also you never know. The thing that really saved us is in this super awkward moment, we're walking around and this girl stands up And she's like, Amy? And it was my intern from when I was at Smashbox who was now at Sephora. She's like, everybody, this is Amy. And she like brought a bunch of people around and helped me hand things out. And it just broke the ice and it made it so much less awkward. That's amazing. And then we had our meeting with the merchants. They said yes immediately, which was really shocking. And she said, not only did they say yes, but they said yes, and we'll put you in all stores. And I i mean, my jaw dropped. It was so shocking. So we went home that day and she called me afterwards and she was like, literally everyone cannot stop asking me when we're going to put you in stores because they all tried your lip gloss and they love it. So I think the, the thing there was just how important it is to kind of sell yourself, not just to the people that you're selling to, but everyone gets influenced by somebody else, right? So we were gifting and influencing, you know, people in customer service and in operations, but those people also work at Sephora because they love makeup, you know? So I think in the end it all helped, but that is how we got Sephora. So that's amazing. But also the other piece of this is that to be in all of those stores, that requires so much capital because you have to make all of the product and mm-hmm. you have to get it to them and you have to make sure that you have enough to replenish. So that's the best news, but that also must have been terrifying news on some level. How did you handle that scale factor? 
Yeah, so I raised money again. I okay. mean, that's the truth <laughs> of it, right? So a few things have really helped me in this journey so far in terms of the entrepreneurial one. One, I have been lucky enough to have community in the sense where because I've worked in the same industry for such a long time, I may not know everything, but I know people who know. And so whether it was, to your point, operations, you know, because once you start selling to Sephora, it's not as simple as, okay, send me a purchase order and I'll fill it. It's like they have to send it through ADI and there's systems involved and they have planners and there's all these different things. And so I was lucky enough to know people who could help me get those things started, which made a huge difference. And I also raised more money from friends and family. I mean, but that's like a whole full-time job on top of it. Yes. I was lucky enough that I was able to raise 500 the first time. I raised 500 the second. And because we already had Sephora locked down, it was actually pretty easy for us to raise money that second time. So that was four and a half years ago that we raised the first money. And now we've been launched for three and a half years. That is amazing. I mean, that is like an incredible, incredible success story. I mean, thank you. I think it really, at the end of the day, it just all goes back to having great products, And I think you have to have a great team too. And I'm really lucky that we've been able to do both and partners, right? So the people part, I think, is all the way around, whether it's vendors, it's my immediate team, which we now have, I just hired an 11th person. So we're still pretty small. But having Sephora as a retail partner and Credo and Revolve, like those have been hugely beneficial to us. I mean, Sephora specifically in terms of being able to get scale quickly. So obviously, I own a lot of your products. I think the brand is really incredible. What are you thinking about? What are you working on? What does your roadmap look like? Because, I mean, to have this level of success this quickly has to be the most amazing feeling, like doors open, full speed ahead. (laughs) But at the same time, it's challenging because when you've had successes, I think there's a level of pressure you put on yourself, like I have to keep making the right choices. And it's like, what's your third album? What's your fourth album when you've had a couple of great albums (laughs) that do really well? So how are you thinking about your roadmap? What areas are you thinking about for expansion? Yeah. So our product philosophy is basically, can we make products that are safe for sensitive skin, clean? Is there an opportunity from a price point perspective? And is there in general white space? Like, is there something that I'm solving for? I'm sure you will agree. There is so much product out there in every category, but specifically in beauty, I think it has never been more competitive. You know, I don't want to put more product in the world for no reason. So actually, I think my team sometimes gets a little frustrated with me, to be honest with you, because if something's not a hundred percent, I just don't want to launch it. Even if we've been working on it for a while and it's just not great. I don't want to put mediocre products into the world. And one thing I'm really proud of is when you look at the reviews or if you look at like the comments, a lot of times people say, well, I'll try anything that you make because I love everything that you make. And when I look at the productivity of our assortment, actually like every product does pull a lot of weight. And so we actually don't have any duds, which is really nice. But in terms of future roadmap, I do, I think about like, what is it that we can really offer to the world that people don't have right now that it's fixing some kind of a problem with them? And then I think from a distribution standpoint, like Sephora has been really great for us. 
us, so we're just going to stick with them for a while. We do have a really exciting product lunch. It's our mascara. <gasps> but to your point about it, like when you said that the stakes get higher, they really do. It, we've been teasing it on our social and calling it the biggest launch of the year. And it really is. I mean, the initial order that we got for it, they gave us a forecast and then they doubled it and then they tripled it. And Sephora is hugely excited about this product, which makes me obviously very excited, but also like perception's reality. You know, you want to sell through it too. So success is one of those things where it can be intoxicating and exciting, but then it is also fills you with fear that, like you said, that third album, is it going to hit the same way that second and first one did, you know? So I know it's a really great product. We've already actually won a huge beauty award for it in advance, which I didn't even know you could do. Very exciting. Oh, thanks. So one thing that we like to talk about on this podcast is mistakes because we all make them, but we don't always talk about it. We just give Instagram highlight reel. So I'm hoping that you can tell me about a mistake that you've made in your career at any point and what you've learned from it. I mean, I feel like I've made a lot of them, but I think the underlying concern is just really not betting on myself earlier. At different points in my career, I've let other people's opinions of me change me and cause me to doubt myself. And I think, you know, an example of that is I had a boss once tell me I was too nice and that I would never amount to anything because I would never be a manager. And then at a different point, someone else told me I was too aggressive. And I think that kind of thing can really get in your head and change who you are. I think it's important to listen to feedback, but at the same time, you really still have to be true to yourself. So a lot of folks who listen to this podcast are in their first life, and they're thinking about what they want to do next, whether that's starting their own thing or changing industries or just changing brands or companies or aspects of their career within the same industry, but they just haven't done it yet. As someone who has made a big pivot in her life, what advice would you give someone who wants to make that leap but just hasn't done it quite yet? Yeah, I think it's that there's no right time. There's no such thing as ready and that time really waits for no one. So as much as I think some people look at my career and they're like, oh, but you've been doing this for so long. It wasn't that much of a leap. I mean, I'm a first-time founder and I think that feels really different than being a beauty executive. But I think there isn't a right way to do it, right? Like, again, I look at people who had tried this when they were like in their 20s and they're killing it. And there's other people who are like me and wait until later. But I think kind of like having kids, there's not really a time when you're ever like, now I'm ready. This is definitely yeah. the time to do it, right? You just kind of have to, if you know you want to do it, you just do it. And then it's like, I always think of that Friends episode with like the couch and the pivot thing. You just pivot, you know? <laughs> you just keep pivoting and you keep trying and you figure it out because you don't know what you don't know. But you'll figure it out and you'll learn if you want to. So my last question is also my favorite question, which is if you could go back in time and speak with your younger self and give younger Amy some career advice, what would you say? It's the same advice I would give to younger Amy is honestly the same advice I try to give to current day Amy, which is just not to wait to be happy. You know, I think if any of us have learned anything during COVID, hopefully it's just that 
we don't have the luxury of time to say like, I'll be happy when. And I think we all do this to ourselves. Like I look at pictures of myself in high school and I think about how I'm sure I was looking in the mirror and telling myself I wasn't this or I wasn't that. And I look back at those pictures now and I'm like, oh, she's so cute. Like what was she so worried about, right? And I bet I'll do the same thing to myself 10 years from now thinking about myself today. And I guess by that, I mean, so many people ask me like, what are your plans? When are you going to sell? When are you going to raise? When are you going to whatever? And I think to be so focused on the outcome is not the way that I want to lead my life. There was a point last year where I started thinking about how when things are going so well, if I'm not happy now, when am I going to be happy, right? This is it. Things are in my favor. And so I think just having that shift in my mindset I'm incredibly happy. I think I'm the happiest I've ever been, right? And that doesn't mean I'm not working my tail off and I'm not busy as I'll get out, but I've had to juggle a lot of things and I've learned a lot on the way and I'm not perfect. And I certainly feel like I'm not doing a perfect job at everything all the time, but you know, I have a very happy home life. I have a great team. I feel like I'm doing right by all the people in my life and I'm trying. So I get to live my dream and I think that's pretty lucky. That's amazing. Amy, I am so proud of you. I'm so excited for you. And I'm so thrilled for myself because I love this brand so much. And I just look forward to continuing to love and support it as we move forward. So thank you, not only for your time, but for creating a brand that I really, really believe in. Oh, thank you so much. That was the founder and CEO of Tower 28, Amy Liu. For more inspiring interviews with women like Amy, head on over to secondlifepod.com where we have so many more for you to peruse. If you like today's show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate and review us. We love seeing you spread the word on social. And now you can tag us in your posts. We are at Second Life Pod on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We always want to know who you're interested in hearing from on the show. So send in your requests to hello at secondlifepod.com or you can DM us on Instagram. I'm at Hillary Kerr. The show is at Second Life Pod. Our DMs are always open. I'm Hillary Kerr, and you've been listening to Second Life.